0: Friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This is a special episode of We the People, and I'm so excited to sit down with none other than Saul Khan, the founder of Khan Academy. Uh, the NCC and Khan Academy have started a really exciting partnership to solve the civics crisis in America by creating a Constitution 101 class for high school students and that's just the beginning for much more. Uh Saul Khan is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, which is of course a nonprofit with the mission of providing a free world-class education for anyone anywhere. He's the founder of Schoolhouse World, Khan Lab School and Khan World School. Saul, welcome to We the People. Thanks
1: for having me, Jeff.
0: So uh, data recently came out from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's uh, uh, called the Nation's Report Card. It's part of the Education Department. And, and the results weren't good. Um, it turns out that uh, eighth graders scored worse on the history section this year than any year since the test was administered since '94, And civic scores dropped for the first time since it was first tested in, in 1998. Uh, Saul, you and I just wrote an op-ed together. Uh, where we argue that one cause of the civics crisis is political polarization. Uh, Students just don't have a model for how to disagree without being disagreeable, to to have civil uh, dialogue and debate about the Constitution. And also, because of polarization, there's little agreement about what to teach in terms of history and civics um, as the world is polarized between 1619 and 1776. Uh, Those were some of our initial thoughts. What 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 are some of your further thoughts about the causes of the civics crisis that we're in?
1: Yeah, I, I think the the polarization is a big part of it because when people feel that if they go into a classroom and if they try to have a dialogue, they might get shut down or they might not be in line with the rest of the students in the class, then they're not going to have that dialogue, and it creates a chilling effect. And it's not just the students who feel that way; it creates a chilling effect for uh, teachers, for principals. I remember right when all of this stuff is this during the pandemic, so everyone's tensions were high. I remember talking to some superintendents and, you know, I typically talk to superintendents about, hey, you know, we have some tools that here at Khan Academy to help improve your math scores. You know, I, I go into it and I can't tell you how many superintendents were telling me, look, This used to be my number one priority. This is now my number two priority. My number one priority is figuring out what to do with civics. And you could almost hear the fear in their voice. They were just trying to get by. And when when you create that type of fear, a lot of folks' reaction is to maybe do nothing. And you compound that with learning loss across all subjects during the pandemic. Uh, And and it's not like things were great beforehand. Uh, It's, you know, even when you and I were growing up, I don't think students had enough Um, engagement with really understanding the founding principles. And and the reason why this is really worrying, and this is something you and I talk a lot about, is a a country, its institutions, its its ability to thrive is not based on its infrastructure or its material wealth. It's not based even on the words that are written in its founding documents. It's really written on what's going on in the minds of the people in that country. Um, And no matter what you know i just i just interviewed uh, a gentleman for uh, ramesh uh, for this um for our course and he you know he talked about how the founding the founders of our country talked about how some of the words in the constitution they're just parchment barriers <laughs> they're just words and what really what what really affects what happens are what what's peop, what people's values are and what their incentives are and unfortunately i think we've the, the polarization and the chilling effect that that's had on honestly the middle eighty percent who doesn't want to be polarized um, has is now having its its effect on students.
0: It's so true, and and Ramesh Panuru using the word parchment barriers from James Madison is such a good reminder of the fact that it's really civic habits of moderation and deliberation more than uh, any particular written document that will save the republic. Well, you and I have both jumped right into this course and it's so I, I agree with you it's so exciting to interview the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America for this course we have an amazing faculty uh, Ramesh Panuru Robbie George uh, judge Jeffrey Sutton on the conservative side uh, Jamel Bowie and uh, uh, Linda Greenhouse and Heather gherkin from Yale Law School on, on on the other side it's just I, I'm learning so much from these Interviews, and it's so exciting to hear everyone's different perspective. What's your initial reaction to all the learning that you've done uh, you know, over over the uh, past couple of months?
1: Yeah, you know, the first learning is it's fun to just even tell people what we're doing, and it's amazing that even though it sounds like a very reasonable thing that we're doing, which is we are interviewing scholars and first person actors on the on the political stage from both the right and the left. Uh, when I tell it to people, they almost feel like this is like a radical action. <laughs> like, wow, and this, and this and that's actually working. I'm like, it absolutely is working. And you know, it actually turns out when we talk and and, and like I find it. It's very. Uh, I find it very intellectually indulgent myself to be able to talk to these folks and essentially ask them whatever I wonder <laughs> about about things. But what I'm finding is even they are in 80, 90% agreement. You know, they, might, they might interpret a few things, but they understand the other point. The really thoughtful people will understand the thoughtful people on the other side, and they tend to agree on some of the core principles that we're all trying to trying to get at. So I found it very refreshing. I have found it a lot less difficult to navigate than many people would have thought. I think you know the middle reasonable 90% of Americans when they look at the content it will excite them about civic engagement and it will make them realize that you know a lot of what the uh the 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 algorithms that make folks want to keep clicking on social media will have you believe is not actually the reality in America but if we're not careful it can become the reality as as we often see with the polarization
0: that is so true i'm so glad you're having the exact same reaction I am to doing these interviews, which is that on the majority of questions of what the basic principles are, folks on all sides agree. And it's so exhilarating just to ask the same questions to people of different perspectives. What are federalism? What's the essence of the ideas at the heart of the Declaration? And have them give very similar answers, but from their unique perspective. And just modeling that for the country, offering up these brilliant people who disagree about so much and yet agree about... The basic principles of the Constitution, I think, is is such a privilege, and I'm so glad that we're doing it. One question that we ask at the end of all of our interviews is, why is it important for students to learn about the U.S. Constitution? And it's very inspiring to hear people's heartfelt answers to that. And 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 folks do have different answers, ranging from it's a, it's a framework for uh, agreement and disagreement to it protects individual uh, minorities against the tyranny of the majority to it, it is the fabric that binds us together and so forth all eloquent and, and surprising and, and and um really meaningful to share what what are you uh struck by the answers to that question
1: exactly the same i i think and and it's all a flavor of and even for me you know even going through this process not through this process but very recently i I'm almost ashamed that it took me so long to realize that the root of the word constitution is the word constitute, <laughs> that it really is what makes up the country. And when you look at it that with that lens, and that's what a lot of the scholars have also pointed out, like, how can you not learn about that? How can you live in a society and not understand the basic DNA of what makes it society? And that's the only way that the society itself is going to continue to become a more perfect union, so to speak. Uh, but also, that's the only way that you can really thrive in that society is if you understand the institutions you understand the guardrails you understand that uh, these 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 rights are not just protecting things that you like but they're protecting some things that you might not like because by protecting that it's also protecting things <laughs> that, that you like and and um, some of the group that could eventually turn on you if you if you become part of it um so Yeah, it's been very refreshing to see that uh, there's broad agreement on that question of why it's important to learn about the constitution.
0: So true. And I I was also struck by the fact that I hadn't thought before these interviews about the roots of that word uh, constitution and constitute. And one scholar pointed out, it comes from the Latin con together and statuere, uh, to stand, to, to stand together is to constitute. And to convene, I learned, is... Con, together, venere, come together. And that idea that a constitution is a place for us to come together and to stand together that constitutes us is is just so true and and so central.
1: I love it. I I never thought I would love etymology this much, but I got to say, I really do. And um, (laughs) I actually never fully uh, processed convene before, but I love that. And and that, yeah, and even constitutes the root of constitution. And it means, yeah, con, with, and then... I guess the same root word as statue, to stand. Y- yes, <laughs> yes. Or a statute and all of that. So, uh, yeah, fascinating.
0: Totally fascinating. Um, I, I know when we uh, began to collaborate, we were excited also about talking to immigrants about why the American dream and, and the, the Constitution is important to them. I, 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 we, we still have to schedule some of those interviews, but what are, you, what are you hoping along those lines?
1: Yeah, this is something I feel very strongly about coming from an immigrant family, that you know, a lot of the narrative and, and some of it is justified is how we can become better as a country, where are our imperfections, et cetera. But I think folks who have not had a chance to experience the rest of the world really can't appreciate how special what we have going on here in the United States is and why even people who aren't in distress, obviously, if you're going through a war, you're a refugee, you're, you're an economic refugee. There's there's reasons why you might want to pick up and go to a place where you get more opportunities. But there's a lot of folks who come from middle class upper class families in other countries and still are willing to give up everything they know, their family, um, and give go six, thousand miles away, seven thousand miles away to just even have a shot uh, in this country. And they come here because uh, there's some things that they hear about the United States from afar. And when they come here, I think more often than not, they realize that yes, This is the most open country. This is the place where you have the most opportunity. Some of that is cultural, where there's this openness, there's this entrepreneurial spirit, but a lot of it is embedded in the Declaration of Independence. It's embedded in in, in the Constitution. Yes, there is bigotry in this country. Yes, there is racism in this country. Um, Yes, this country does have uh, some dark aspects of its past, but if you look everywhere else in the world, uh, I would argue almost any other large, diverse country has at least as many issues, if not far more. So this isn't to be an apologist for America, but at least to appreciate what we have. Um, you know, I, I, if you live in a house and and some you know it's it's breaking down a little bit, and maybe some of the the flowers are dying or whatever else, uh, you can quickly say, "Oh, I wish I had a, a fancier house." Until you realize that actually you have the best house in the neighborhood or you have the best house in the world and i think once again it's not just a matter of appreciation but it's it it allows you to have a a more optimistic forward attitude and i think that's one of the reasons why oftentimes immigrants do well in this country because when they come here they're like yeah there's some issues going on here but wow there's so much opportunity there's so much that i can do with this i'm going to lead into this and i think uh, you know, I was born in this country. Obviously, my kids were born in this country. And if you don't have that that lens, you can take things for granted. You can sometimes get focused too much on the negative, And then they become self-fulfilling prophecies, I think, in in many cases. So I think we can really look to immigrants, people who are making this decision every day to g- pick up, leave what they leave. And they're leaving a lot behind uh, to come to the U.S. To, to kind of invigor our appreciation for what we have.
0: Wow, Uh, Saul, that was so inspiring. I think we should put that in the course. You just made the best case for the American dream and the immigrant experience that I can imagine. And you talk about appreciating and that more optimistic forward attitude, and you're so eloquent about it. Um, And I know that when we ask other immigrants, they will be equally uh, optimistic and eloquent because it's so heartfelt.
1: I'll I'll add one thing, and you've, you've met my wife, Umama, um she feels very strong about this. She, she grew up in Pakistan until she was uh, 12 years old. And then uh, uh, it was her father and he's passed away. And, but it it was his dream for like a decade to come to the US for all of the reasons that I just mentioned. He eventually, they eventually were able to uh, immigrate here and her and they, you know, they came from a middle-class, upper middle-class family in Pakistan and they, um, you know, her, her background is very similar to mine. When we got here, various circumstances happened. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of uh, the trappings of middle-class life. But her college essay was about how Amer- kids who were born in this country are not grateful for what they have. That <laughs> This is an amazing country. And at her 40th birthday... Uh, it was a restaurant. And my wife is not an extrovert. She's not someone who likes to hog the microphone. She's usually, you know, she 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 views me as the as the mouth of the family. And she, you know, she just started talking about this about how on her birthday, you know, no one asked her to talk about the country, but she says like people don't realize how like what an opportunity we have in this country and how great it is. And the entire staff of the restaurant was in tears because I think it helped rem- remind them what they have, even though I'm sure we all have difficulties in our life and things that are suboptimal, but we have a lot going for us as well, if we're we're lucky enough to be here.
0: Wow. I I love meeting with mom, and I could just imagine how moving she would be talking about the immigrant experience. And as as we've discussed, just ask a first-generation immigrant why America is special, and it's easy to end up in tears. We had a Constitution Day speech from Jim Specker, the president of. University of Pittsburgh and he had everyone in tears as well because he was so eloquent. You know, since we're still planning the final interviews, how shall we go about identifying other immigrants to interview?
1: You know, I think it's not unreasonable to just go through, you know, talk to folks, say, "Hey, do you know anyone who's an immigrant?" And, who's and, and 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 let's talk to them because I think we'll we'll get surprising stories. You know, I've been in I've been in cabs and um sometimes people say, Hey, are you the Khan Academy guy? And, and, you know, and maybe the cab driver is a student and is talking about how they use Khan Academy, but oftentimes the conversations will go into, you know, what their old life was, what they were doing in their old country and why they've come here and they gave up a profession to now they're driving a cab, but why it's worth it, why they're willing to do it for their own children. And, and so you really don't know these, these stories can come out of really almost any context. And so I think it's just a matter of talking to folks. And, you know, when I really think about it, there's not an immigrant I know that when you really ask them, you know, what makes America special? Why did you come here? Um, In many cases, you seem to have had a pretty good situation back home. (laughs) You know, your siblings, your parents had a pretty good situation. Why did you come here? You will get a good answer. I love talking to you because we
0: can brainstorm in real time and uh, plan out this great great collaboration. So now I want to think about how we can bring this content to other audiences. This Constitution 101 class is going to be for high school students. Wouldn't it be exciting to distill these basic principles and great voices into uh, certainly a class for middle school students, and then a a kind of adult version for college students and adults about the essence of the American idea in preparation for America's 250 just just a, a dream but what do you think about that?
1: Oh I couldn't agree more I, I think uh, if we if we if we have the resources a little bit of a fundraising plug for us both as nonprofits uh, yeah we, we absolutely could create all the way from you know kindergarten through college and life curricula around this and you know what's also exciting is not only can we create these uh, these interviews from first person actors and immigrants and people in 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 media uh, and and create the, uh, kind of a mastery based personalized exercise progression that we're also working with. But as many folks know, we're we're at an AI inflection point, an artificial intelligence inflection point. And we have started beta testing an uh, artificial intelligence as part of Khan Academy. We call it Conmigo. And we have found that it is perhaps most powerful or one of the places where it's most powerful is in in topics of civics because you can debate the AI about issues of the constitution, the second amendment, the first amendment. It can take both sides. We, We have simulations where you can talk to uh, founders of our of our country. Uh, eventually, I hope we can you know we can talk to the judges who wrote uh, major Supreme Court decisions, and <laughs> the AI can emulate it and answer questions about about why they decided to weigh one w- way or the other. Essentially, because it's able to train on the decisions. Uh, so, I, I think between creating that entire progression uh, and. And bringing it into schools, we are working closely with about a, we have tens of millions of students who come every month, but about a million students formally in classrooms in K-12. We can do more and more for them. And then I would love to figure out ways to even people to get college credit for this, ways that even employers might want to do it because I think employers themselves are worried about the inability to have civil dialogue you know the same issue that you see in the in the broader world where oh well you know maybe people who are a little bit right of center and left of center are almost afraid to talk to each other for for fear that's bringing itself into the workplace too where where people are stepping on eggshells and they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and they're not engaging and when they do engage it quickly gets into a very uh, ugly polarized place so um I think everyone, I think corporations would want it as part of their onboarding for like what is what does civic dialogue look like, and what does our country really stand for? So true, and I love your uh, vision, which I completely share.
0: And um what uh, what's so exciting is that we have the core curriculum, the content rooted in the Constitution and constitutional law and history that will allow us to do this from a non partisan perspective. I want to ask you more about AI in a second, because you you, you and I have just begun talking about that. But just one more word about what the classes for uh, employees and for adults and and college students might look like. Would we use the same kind of content, the same format with experts going back and forth, and then just devise ways for these different audiences
1: to engage with it? I I think the content that we're making with the experts, it can it's useful for someone, uh, you and I have found a lot of value talking to these folks, but I think that the language that's being used and the level of, because they're natural conversations, they aren't these very pedantic or very intellectual conversations using all this technical language. I've, sh- I've started showing them to my eight-year-old and he likes them. <laughs> and so um, I think the actual content is very appealing to a very broad range of folks. I think the exercises... We can obviously make the language and make the concepts a little bit simpler for the elementary school age students. But I think what we're already, uh, the concepts that are part of the exercises, I think they're completely reasonable for college students and, and adults uh, as well. Because uh, I think the beauty here is the, the underlying ideas are both profound, but they don't have to be hidden behind a lot of technical or legalistic jargon. And I think when people have a chance to, to experience it in a conversational way, which is what we are doing... Um, it just resonates with them. They feel more connected about it. They feel more excited about um, about mapping it to their own lives.
0: So true. And uh, of course, for middle school and high schools and college students, there's the unique con network and also the assessment method that ensures that folks are mastering the material. what What kind of platforms would you imagine for adult audiences?
1: I imagine pretty similar platform uh, that they can watch videos, and that could be on demand. If they just have a question about the electoral college, they can learn a little bit about that or the First Amendment. Uh, but if they really want to review and and make sure they understood things, as you mentioned, you know, mastery learning is just this idea that you get you should get a chance to practice and assess as much as necessary for you to really master the material, and so. Uh, in all courses, and we've been doing this in conjunction with y'all, we create very deep item banks. So someone might do a few questions. If they're still missing some concepts, they can do it again. And they're not going to see, they're unlikely to see repeat questions. And then they can do it where you're mixing concepts together and so that they can get multiple sessions for review, et cetera. So I can imagine that already being the core. Uh, But then on top of that, uh, you know, we're we're starting to roll out, uh, as I already mentioned, artificial intelligence, where people can really start to take it to a whole other level. One of the, I thought most powerful points of feedback from a high school student when we were doing some of the early testing with the artificial intelligence, it was actually on a civics topic. It was actually on a judicial appointment and Senate confirmation. And this high school student, I was sitting next to her when she gave the feed, she 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 opened up the AI and she says, "Well, you know, wh- why is this relevant?" And then it brought up some of the recent confirmation hearings and how it's played out. And she and the AI started getting into a little bit of debate about has a confirmation. Is this the spirit of judicial confirmation that originally that the founders uh, might have intended or that maybe were intended by some of the early precedent around uh, Senate confirmation? And she kind of turns to me and she's like, wow, I feel so confident being able to talk to the AI and I'm able to fine tune my arguments and my thoughts without fear of being judged in the classroom. And that goes (laughs) right back to where we started. There's so much fear of being judged either is unintelligent or not a good argument, but oftentimes, oh, that is a, you know, you by by you saying that I'm going to label you as left or right or this or that, as opposed to just someone who's trying to navigate the content. Wow.
0: All right, let's talk about AI. Uh, you and I haven't talked about it yet as uh, part of our collaboration. I saw your inspiring TED Talk. Uh, as I mentioned, I have some more uh, I have some some skepticism uh, c- coming to it, but I'm open to uh, learning more about it and and want to think about how it would be used in the civics context. Is is con if if we did it in civics, is, is Conmigo operating from the full AI set of data that Chat GPT would, or is it a is a is it a closed set? Um, and do you use it sort of to pose questions rather than to answer them? How does it work?
1: Yeah, and 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 so. What's been interesting, if you asked me a year ago, is Khan Academy going to be using AI or generative AI, I would have said, yeah, generative AI is interesting. I've been keeping track at the time, GPT-2, GPT-3. It's cool, but I don't think Khan Academy is going to use it. We were looking at, let's call it more specialized AIs to potentially recommend students what might be a good next activity on Khan Academy for them. But then last summer, uh, OpenAI reached out to us. They said, hey, we're about to finish the first run of training our next generation model, which is GPT-4. This was all confidential at the time. And they said, we think it's going to be exciting, but also a little bit scary. And we think it's important to launch with social positive use cases from organizations that folks trust. And we said education and Khan Academy were the first things that we thought about. And when I had access to it those first few weekends, uh, this is you know it seems like forever ago but this is 4 months before chat gpt came out etc and this is with a better version chat gpt is using gpt 3.5 this is gpt 4 i said okay now this is a game changer uh, because it was you know when you just use it out of the box uh, kind of a lot of folks experience with chat gpt it can be robotic it 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 makes mistakes hallucinations is the technical term for when it makes up facts uh, it can infamously make uh, mistakes in math. But we started to find that if we put it in the right context and we put the right guardrails around it, that you could really mitigate a lot of those things and you could create somewhat magical experiences out of it. And so we just kept iterating it. We we, we weren't sure exactly how aggressive we were going to get. Then ChatGPT comes out in November of 2022. And I remember slacking Greg Brockman, who's one of the, the founders of OpenAI. I was like, "Hey, I thought you weren't going to launch this till twenty twenty three, and we were under NDA and all this." He's like, "No, we didn't launch anything. This was just a chat interface on GPT three point five, which had already been out, but that already captured folks' imagination." And I remember at the time thinking, "Oh, you know, does this steal our thunder, et cetera?" And I said, like, "No, this is actually a really good thing because it just kind of put it out there, and it let society started to start to wrestle." With both the positives and the negatives of it, talk about civic discourse. This is actually a place where we do need to have a discourse in the in the global town hall, especially in the national town hall. And um, people saw, wow, this is powerful. It can start doing all of this, but very real questions: Is it going to make students cheat? It has bias. Does it hallucinate? And that's when I talked to the Khan Academy team. I was like, look, we already have some really good solutions to this problem. We've already uh, there's a world where we can help lead here. We can put proper guardrails on it. Um, and, and so, and mitigate the risks so that we can hopefully maximize the benefit. And so some of what we've done, Jeff, as you mentioned, cheating is one of the main issues. So Conmigo, which is leveraging GPT-4, which is the generation ahead of, of GPT-3.5. If you ask it to tell you the answer or write an essay, it's not going to do that. It, if, if, if you're a student, it's going to say, Hey, um, I'm your tutor. I'm not here to just help you cheat. But what? How do you think you should approach it? So it actually does it in a Socratic way. It, it'll it'll nudge you forward. Hey, have you thought about this? Or what does this word mean to you? But it does what a good tutor would do. Also, all conversations are um, logged and they're accessible by parents and teachers. Also, we have a second artificial intelligence that monitors conversations. If there's if the conversation goes shady, for lack of a better word, uh, the Parents and teachers are going to be actively notified. And then the last piece is we think it's important to, uh, there's a digital literacy aspect to it. This notion of misinformation or um, fake news is not new to AI. It's, it's rampant in the internet for the last 20 years and it's only gotten worse. And so even before generative AI, it, the responsible thing to do is to educate students, all of whom have already had access to Google and Bing and everything else. Say, look, not everything you get on the internet has equal equal value. Is that from some random website or is that from the National Constitution Center? You have to understand, you, you know, you you have to be able to judge how credible that is. I think with generative AI, uh, the good thing is it it's not intentionally when it when it does make up facts. It's not it's not doing it maliciously like it's often at times happening on the internet, but it can happen now the providers like ourselves, there's a lot of things that we're doing behind the scenes to mitigate that and minimize what that is. But also our responsibility is as part of the application, we write, Conmigo sometimes makes mistakes and they can click on here's why. It's part of a digital literacy, which is important to just not only responsibly use a tool like this right now, but it's an important digital literacy to have for the rest of students' lives because people are already using these tools in the workplace. And and they are powerful tools, but they have to know they're what the guardrails are and how to use them responsibly.
0: Uh, very interesting. Well, let's think together about how it might be useful in teaching constitutional law and civics. I, my hope is that students who take our classes will be familiar with the methodologies of constitutional interpretation, uh, text, textualism, originalism, precedent, uh, tradition-based approaches, Uh, pragmatism and natural law are some of the main methods and would be able to write a majority opinion and a dissent for cases ranging from the Second Amendment to uh, uh, abortion to federal power. Um, Is that a realistic view and could uh, AI help us uh, ask students questions that would um, help them learn how to do that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is what's exciting about it. So already on Conmigo, we have things like a student can... Debate issues of the day. You know, should student debt be canceled? Should uh, CRISPR be allowed to modify the human genome? Uh, and, and the student can pick what side they they take, and the AI can take the other side, and also assess the students debating. And we can apply that to constitutional issues. Uh, we already have things where you can talk to historical figures, simulations of historical figures. Uh, we're even thinking about uh, simulations where you can talk to inanimate objects, like talk to the Mississippi River, or Maybe talk to the Constitution. Um, so you have those types of things, but then above and beyond that, we're introducing modalities where students can write and it and it gives the students feedback on their thinking, on their logic, on on their on their uh, storytelling, whatever it might be, where it highlights parts of it and then they can have a conversation. So you can imagine doing close readings of uh, judicial decisions, uh, doing close readings of the Constitution, of other founding documents. But having a conversation about it uh, anchored in the document itself. And that's where the AIs really thrive when it's anchored on an actual document. You, you see, essentially, these, these other issues are, are much less likely to happen. Uh, but I see going even further. Imagine a simulation where you argue a Supreme Court case in front of the Supreme Court, uh, where you take one of the sides, or you have two AIs arguing the case in front of you, and then you have to write the decision. Uh, and then you get feedback on the decision. This also would have seemed like science fiction a year ago. This, honestly, if we if we focus on this, could 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 be live within a few months.
0: Wow. Um, it, it, what are the other guardrails and structures around it? Is it is does it have access to all of Chat GPT, and it's told only to ask questions, or it's given a a, a structure like? argue both sides and have the student write an opinion or how, how, how does it work?
1: Yeah. So the way these large language models work is they, they're trained on, you know, as much of human product knowledge as they can get access to. So, you know, just think of it as the internet plus every scanned in book, plus the transcripts of every podcast, plus who knows what else they're getting. They also, you know, the AI uh, companies are are paying human beings to label things and uh, give extra context. So these large language models train on all of that. Um, you know, the 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 p and t is pre-trained in gpt generative pre-trained uh model um and uh, or a pre-trained transformer i should say so it's a pre the p is pre-trained the t is transformer model but the um but then they do fine tune training and fine tune training is you essentially get experts to work with the model give it you know hey here's a here's a prompt what does a model come back? And is that a good response or a bad response? And here's what the expert would have responded. And so they use that for things like safety and recognizing when the model might be going into not constructive places or, or might be getting overly biased. I personally uh, spent about 20 hours fine-tuned training the GPT-4 model that's out there now for everybody um, around the tutoring use case where we gave our prompts that we were using to m- try to make it be a strong tutor and uh, we were using the cases where it wasn't so strong and I was saying well this is what I would have done and we do think it it's 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 made a difference there so between some of that fine-tuned training uh, between uh, what's I guess called prompt engineering which you know we've spent months countless hours writing prompts for each of these contexts so that it feels magical it feels conversational but it also is accurate it also is, Appropriately modest and and doesn't have overconfidence if it's if it's getting into a certain uh, area where it might not have knowledge Um, and also we're doing things you know math is I think the place where these large language models have historically had the most difficulty but we we've been doing things and this might sound a little creepy we've introduced notions of of AI thoughts where the AI does things for its for itself so it can think before it speaks and then give a better response to learners so if it's in a tutoring session with you and you, it says, Oh, you know, so Jeffrey, what do you think is the next step for this equation? And you're like, okay, you know, i distribute the two and maybe you make a mistake when you do it. What the AI first does is it makes one call to itself to say, okay, well, what, what are all the reasonable things that a student could do at this point? And it writes it all down. doesn't share that with the student. It just shares it with itself. Then it takes that and says, all right, now let me compare Jeffrey's response to what I think all of the reasonable things. So it's really what a real, I think what a human, that's what I do when I tutor. I first think what are all the reasonable responses here, and then I would look at what my my uh, students' response is. But what we found when we do that that increases the accuracy of the math dramatically, um, as it does for human beings. You think before you speak; it improves what comes out of your mouth. Uh, and but also, and this is what we we alluded to when it's anchored in the 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 content on Khan Academy, it's even less likely to stray. So you're doing a tutoring session, but it's anchored in an actual problem on Khan Academy where we've already given it the problem, the correct answer, how our experts would have approached it. So then it 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 it's less likely to go to 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 veer off script. Similar when you watch a video, it has the context of the video. It has the transcript. If you're reading an article, and so this is going to apply to everything on Khan Academy when we turn the AI on for those users, including this course that we're doing together.
0: All right, just a few more beats so I understand it. Um, say we're training an exercise where either uh, the AI argues both sides of, say, the Dobbs decision about whether or not Roe should be overturned, and then the student writes the opinion, or the student argues one side and the AI argues the other. Would, would we put into the exercise a closed set of documents, videos, texts, the, pre- the previous cases, everything that's been said about it, and then train it and work with the exercise, and then launch it live, um, or does it work in some other way?
1: Yeah, and you know, one thing we we have, um, and you know, maybe we shouldn't, but at least for the first version, we stayed away from some of the more sensitive debates, like the Dobbs decision. Um, but because of its its pre training, it it has a lot of context of major decisions. Now the Dobbs decision. Uh, some of these models don't have the very most current information. So it might not have that, to, but if you did, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, or you would to do, you know, some of these more historic ones, it, it, and as part of this pre-training, it tends to have very good context on, on these types of things, but above and beyond that behind the scenes, the application developer, us in this case, we can feed it prompts. Um, I think one of the limitations is that there is cost associated. There's significant computation costs with especially these, more complex uh, artificial intelligences now, and so that's what we're trying to navigate. Uh, how do we how do we handle that marginal cost? And it's 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 related to how much information you're feeding it going in, and how much information it's generating coming out. And uh, but we are behind the scenes doing exactly what you just described. We are passing it the transcripts of videos. We are passing it. You know, we have a um, activity which it it's kind of acts as like a, a, a college career coach, and so we are behind the scenes passing it a lot of documents on like, hey, here are things to look out for. Here are things to stay away from. Here are some good rules of thumb, some extra knowledge, extra context that it wouldn't have just gotten from its pre-training. So interesting. Well,
0: of course, you know that at the NCC, our our, our, our mission is to teach that when it comes to constitutional law, generally there's no right answer. They're, they're just good and uh, less rigorous arguments. And training students and citizens to listen respectfully to to all sides and to be enough of uh, them to, to understand the methodologies well enough that they could write a really good majority opinion or a really good dissent in Dobbs based on whether they're originalists or, or living constitutionalists is a goal. So it, it does sound like you think that AI is especially good at training people to take both sides of a question.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a sad state of where we are, but... Um... I'm, I'm finding that Conmigo is better at civil dialogue than, than 95% of people. So. <laughs> uh,
0: as we expand our collaboration, what are other exercises you could see might be helpful in, in teaching people how to have civil dialogue and listen to arguments that they disagree with and uh, disagree without being disagreeable?
1: You know, one of the things that we are exploring is not just have one-on-one interactions with the artificial intelligence, but using the artificial intelligence to facilitate conversation amongst several people. So you can imagine in the not too far future, and a lot of this will be anchored probably in, you know, a lot of what we're focusing on civics is imagine, you know, Conmigo, we're saying it's a tutor for every student. It's a teaching assistant for every teacher. And it's also, and by the way, it can help teachers create lesson plans and connect it to the real world or things that the students care about, et cetera. But we want it to be able to a teacher can say, Hey, what do you think we should cover? And they develop a lesson plan. And then kind of me, you know, maybe they say, Hey, let's let's put all the students into breakouts. And in each breakout, we'll have two students on this side of that Supreme Court case, two students on that side of the Supreme Court case. And Kanmigo, you facilitate the conversation. And you know, based on the arguments presented, not some pre um preordained bias, uh, you need to make a decision based on the arguments presented and your reading of the constitution or a reading of the constitution uh, I, I, that's not science fiction. Uh, I think that's going to happen in the next year. We're going to be able to do this type of thing where once again, it's not humans with AI only it's AI helping humans interact with each other better. And maybe behind the scenes, the AI can give feedback to the different actors saying, Hey, is there another way you could frame that? Or, Hey, I know you're about to say that I see the argument you're making, but before we post that to the class channel, um, is there a way that you could frame it that's not as um, antagonizing <laughs> to the other side? I, I think this is this is absolutely possible.
0: That's remarkable. Well, a key, as you said, is w- what's the content that the AI is uh, teaching? And that's why this course that we've developed together is really such a great model for teaching civics moving forward, because we've been guided by a couple of basic principles. First, we're going to have experts of diverse perspectives, liberals and conservatives, to present opposing points of view. Uh, second, we're going to um, only teach constitutional issues, not political or policy issues, teaching students to separate their their constitutional from their political conclusions. Uh, and that radical act of faith that students starting in middle school are capable of that um, exercise is, is really an important thing that we're Offering to America, and then finally learning the habits of of civil dialogue and being able to take both sides and um, having empathy for the other point of view. So I'm I'm really excited and and honored to be thinking through with you how we can expand this civics curriculum from high schools to all these other audiences. And I'm definitely sold enough by our initial uh, conversation here, and we're just jumping into this to want to learn a a whole lot more about AI and think about ways of perhaps adopting it.
1: Yeah, well, I love being here and. I always feel a little bit smarter when I talk to you, Jeffrey, and I. And and and, and you are always very uh, kind with your words, and you get, make me more confident and make me want to learn more about the about 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 the Constitution. But this is a really fun. I you know I, I love to nerd out in all subjects, and um, I this is I don't want to pick favorite subjects because like picking a favorite child, but definitely this project we have going on together I think is both exciting for all of us, but even more importantly I think could make make it exciting for a lot of other folks and, and, and address a major need in society. Absolutely. Um,
0: I, I'm not allowed to have favorite amendments because I, I can't pick favorite <laughs> kids either, but I definitely ha- do have a favorite subject. And that is the Constitution. As you know, we're very, very excited about it at the NCC. And it's it's so great to share that enthusiasm with you and your your vision for education. You're just changing the course of education in America and, and the incredible platform of, of, of students that you have built, um, it's it's just a thrill to, to be able to reach them and to inspire them to learn about the Constitution. So here's all the great work we're doing. Uh, we have to do, do together. And and I, I want to um, note that 2026 is the 250th anniversary of America. How exciting, how transformative it would be if together we aspire to teach these basic principles of uh, the Constitution to uh Learners of all ages, uh, 8 to 80, um, in preparation for America's 250.
1: I love that. I got to say, you know, I was born in 1976, you know, famously a bicentennial baby. And there is something strange about, you know, you learn about the bicentennial and because the year you were born. And somehow it creates a a kind of connection (laughs) to to, uh, the Declaration of Independence in a very strange way uh, that I've always felt. And, um, you know, it's fun because I can always... Uh, figure out how old our uh, country is by uh, taking my age and adding uh, uh, 200. So um, I think it's, you know, for for both the (laughs) country's 250th and my 50th, I can imagine nothing better than what you just described. Beautiful. Well, I'll I'll end with the words that I do with all of our scholars on our videos,
0: and and that's to say, Saul Khan, for all you're doing to inspire learners of all ages to learn about the Constitution. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Sam Desai. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. And friends, what an exciting time it is for that mission! And as you heard from my conversation with Sal Khan, there's so much meaningful work that we can all do together. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate $5, $10, any amount to signal your support of the mission and the importance of constitutional education in America. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.